Well, on this Sunday, April 19th, we are going to return this morning to the Gospel of John. We haven't been here in a while due to the missions conference, um, due to uh, speaking on Easter, uh, an approach to Easter, and then focusing on the resurrection last Sunday. And of course, in the midst of this, there has been the un incredibly unusual circumstance of the COVID-19 coronavirus. But today we return to the Gospel of John, where we were in January and February, and we will be in the Gospel of John for the foreseeable future. This morning we're going to pick up where we left off back in February, and that is in John chapter 2, and we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 11. One of the more famous miracles that Jesus ever did, turning the water into wine. Now, I want to repeat each week, especially because we have people even outside of our church family who are watching this, for which we are extremely grateful. Um, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to John chapter 2, 1 through 11. But if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. Don't know how to use a Bible, that's okay. We're going to have all the verses that I'm using today, or at least the vast majority of them will be on the screen. So let me read for you John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And this is what John writes. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Well, this morning, even though this passage is familiar to many of you, I want us, as I always encourage us, to look at this passage with fresh eyes. There are things maybe you've learned before that you need to learn again. And then I hope there are some things maybe you haven't seen before in this very important passage that will encourage us, that will help us as we grow in Christ. Three basic things we're going to look at this morning. A mother, a miracle, and the glory of Christ. This actually breaks down in the three paragraphs that are here very easily. A mother, a miracle, and the glory of Christ. And so our first point this morning is a mother. 
One of the unifying themes in the Gospel of John is the manifestation of the glory of Christ. So as we begin this morning, I want us to just kind of step back and get this big picture of the Gospel of John. And we see throughout all the chapters of the Gospel of John that Jesus came to obey his Father and to do his Father's will. Oh, we see that thread running so strongly and so consistently throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus came to do his Father's will. He came to obey his Father. And the Father will glorify Jesus with the glory that has been theirs for all of eternity. In fact, when we get to John chapter 17 in the months ahead, Jesus will pray in his high priestly prayer, Father, glorify me. Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. And I want us to think of two verses from chapter 1, two critical verses that really help us to kind of latch on to this whole theme of obedience to the Father and the glorification of Jesus. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, that amazing, amazing verse, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, the word, the Logos, became flesh. We looked at that at length in chapter 1. And the Logos, God in the flesh, dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son. The only Son of the Father, or from the Father. Now notice this, full full of grace and truth, full of grace and full of truth. Hang on to that as we work through this miracle this morning. Then John chapter 1 and verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From his fullness, from his fullness we have all received. Those who know him as Savior have received grace upon grace. So in the miracle we look at this morning, together, let us behold the glory of Christ. Well, in verses 1 through 5, we get to listen in on a fascinating conversation between Jesus and his mother. In verses 1 and 2, it says this, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. It says on the third day. Now, it's interesting that little phrase is the subject of a little bit of debate because we're not sure exactly what the third day is referring to. Let me give you the easiest and simplest explanation of what it means. It simply means the third day after the events at the end of chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, Jesus has this divine encounter with Nathaniel, and they are talking together. And three days after that, and three days after that, there was this wedding. So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, 
and the mother of Jesus was there. So Jesus' mother is there. Mary is there. So this evidently was a wedding of a relative or a wedding of a close friend. But they are at this great celebration together. And it's the wedding and what we would normally refer to as the reception or the feast that went along with it. But please notice in the text that Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And I think that's important. Because Jesus didn't live as a monk out in a monastery somewhere in isolation. No, he was involved in all the events of life. And I just want us to think this morning that Jesus celebrated and rejoiced in the lives of his people. In Romans chapter 12, it says that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And at this point, Jesus is rejoicing with those who rejoice. It's good. It's good for us to be involved in both the celebrations and the sorrows of life as the children of God. And notice that his disciples were with him. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And that seems like just a, a little side note, but it's important to the rest of the gospel because Jesus now is a respected teacher with followers, with disciples. Now, we know that he's going to go on to become very controversial as a teacher, but he is, at this point, a respected rabbi with students who follow him, and some of those students, some of his disciples, are with him. Well, in verse 3, which is more important than maybe we realize when we just give this a casual reading, it says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. She goes to her son and says, Jesus, they have no wine. Now, the reason this is significant is because a groom at a wedding, the groom was the person who was responsible for making sure there was plenty of wine for all of the guests. If you ran out of wine, at a wedding, it was an embarrassing, humiliating situation. Now, we don't know why they ran out of wine. It could be they didn't plan well. It could be that more guests came than they thought were going to come. Or it could be that people drank more than they thought they were going to drink. But this groom is placed in a very awkward, embarrassing situation. And Mary knew it. And Mary knew it, and so she goes to Jesus. And let's understand, folks, Mary knew that her son was special. She knew that he was this respected rabbi, that he was a gift from God. And she goes to him and basically says, you got to help him out of this situation. The only thing that I can compare it to, and I don't know if it's a direct correlation, but let's say that one of your adult children is getting married and you're at the reception and you've planned for the wedding reception as best you can and about half or more of the guests have eaten and you realize you're running out of food. And it's possible that a third or more of your guests aren't going to have any food at all. 
you, you've totally run out and you're embarrassed and you don't know what to do. That's where this groom is at. And, and, and Mary goes to Jesus and says, you need to help him out here. You need to, to come to his aid. Well, then we come to verse 4. And Jesus gives her an amazing, interesting, intriguing response that has intrigued Bible students for centuries. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. It's verse 4 that I really want us to hone in on. Jesus says to her, Woman, now, I want you to understand this morning that what Jesus says to his mom at this point is not disrespectful, but it is firm, okay? What he says to his mother is not disrespectful, but it is very firm. And he says to her, woman. Now, at this time in this culture, in the original language, this is a very respectful term. It's not like some people use it today. It's not like, woman, go get me my supper. That's not that at all. This is a very tender term. And all we have to do is trace the use of that term elsewhere in the Bible, especially in the Gospel of John. Remember, in John chapter 19, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And he's suffering crucifixion. And he looks down at the Apostle John and he looks down at his mom and he wants John to take Mary in and care for her. And then he says to his mother on the cross, woman, behold your son. Very tenderly speaks to her. In John chapter 4, as Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, he speaks to her very tenderly and says, woman, in the future, you will not worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem, but you will worship in spirit and truth. So he uses it with her in a very tender way. Now, he uses this tender term, woman, but then he says to her, what does this have to do with me? And I believe what Jesus is saying here, and almost every commentary I read agrees with this, is Jesus is saying to Mary, Mary, what does this have to do with me? I'm here to obey my Father. I'm here to do my Father's will. I'm here to bring about the divine redemptive plan of God. Don't rush me. Don't push me too fast in this, Mary. You need to let this happen in my time and in my way. So he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Why are you asking me to help out in this situation? And then he says this, my hour has not yet come. Woman, mother, my hour has not yet come. What does the hour refer to? That is clear, especially in the Gospel of John and throughout the New Testament. He is referring to his own passion. And by his passion, I don't just mean his death on the cross. I mean his death, his resurrection, ultimate glorification. All of that is involved in the term, my hour. And he says, Mary, my hour has not yet come. It's not time yet. 
It's not that time yet. I need to move to that point in my way and in my divine time. These aren't going to be on the screen, but just listen with me. A couple of references here that help us to understand this. John chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 8, verse 20. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. You see, Jesus had come to obey his Father and to manifest his glory. And he needed to do that in his time and in his way. But here's what's so interesting. Even though he is in essence gently rebuking his mother at this point, he still goes ahead and performs the miracle. He still goes ahead and does what his mother asks. He just wants her to understand that his purpose is more important than his relationship with her. Okay? His relationship with the Father is more important than his relationship with his earthly mother. And you know what? That's true with all of us, or should be as Christians. We love our family, but there is something more important than our family. I am blessed to have a good relationship with my wife, Lori, but there is someone in my life more important than her, and that is Jesus. And there is someone more important in Lori's life than me, and that is Jesus. And that is what Jesus wants his own mother to understand at this point. But then he very graciously, for his own purpose and glory, goes ahead and does what she requests. And that brings us to our second point this morning, and that is a miracle. In verses 6 through 10, Jesus performs a great miracle, a miracle that was even greater than we often think. And I want to challenge all of us this morning that this miracle that even people outside the church know about, Jesus turned water into wine, this is a greater miracle than we have ever thought of before. In verse 6, it says this, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So there were six stone water jars there. These were big ones. They each held 20 or 30 gallons. That means all together, those six jars could hold 120 to 180 gallons of water. So those are big jars. But what these jars were used for is they would have water in them, and they were used for the Jewish rite, the Mosaic law rite of purification. You would come in and you would wash yourself outwardly so that you would be pure outwardly as you would go into a function, or in this case, a feast and celebration. And that is so important to this whole miracle, and I just want you to hang on to that. 
that this was for the Jewish rite of purification, and these were huge water jars. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So they fill up these six stone water jars. They fill them to the brim. So we've got 120 to 180 gallons of water that has now, that has now been turned into wine. And in verses 9 and 10, it says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called for the bridegroom. Oh, the bridegroom gets a big out here. He said to them, and said to him, verse 10, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now, I want you to think of something, just kind of a side note. This groom goes from a goat to a hero. I mean, he's run out of wine. He's in an embarrassing, humiliating situation. And now, the master of the feast calls him over and says, Hey, buddy, what is going on here? You've saved the very best wine for the end. I've never heard of anyone doing that before. And I want us to just really think about this. The master of the feast isn't just saying, oh, this is good wine. He's stunned. The master of the feast is stunned. You've got 120 to 180 gallons of the very best wine. Wow, and you've saved it for the end. This is a great miracle, a tremendous miracle. But I want us to think very carefully at this point. Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine is filled with important biblical and theological implications. I'm going to offer three this morning. I'm sure there are more than three. But I want you to think of three important biblical and theological implications of Jesus turning water into wine in great abundance. First, wine in Jewish culture represented great joy. It represented the joy of the Lord. All you have to do is trace wine throughout the Old Testament and you will see that it was used by God's pe people for great feasts and great celebrations that they would have. Whether it was festivals, whether it was the harvest or whatever it was, weddings, other occasions, they would come together and they would rejoice and celebrate and wine was always an important part of that because wine represented the joy of the Lord. Please see with me here this morning, people. The law and the traditions of men that the people were oppressed by and bound in, and he has come to bring the joy of the Lord because he is joy itself. And he not only gives us a little bit of joy, he gives us 120 to 180 gallons of joy. He gives us joy overflowing. A.W. Pink was a great Bible teacher and scholar in the first part of the last century. 
he is considered to have one of the most exhaustive studies in the Gospel of John, and he writes this. He said, Judaism, he's speaking of this miracle in John 2. Judaism still existed as a religious system, but it ministered no comfort to the heart. It had, de it had degenerated into a cold, mechanical routine, utterly destitute of joy in God. Israel had lost the joy of their Lord. So first of all, it represents the fullness of the joy of the Lord. Second, biblical and theological implication of this miracle. The miracle of water to wine represented the grace of God as opposed to the law and legalism of the Jewish religious leaders. Oh, the people lived under the oppression of the law plus all these traditions of men. And not only was it joyless, but they had to work for it. They had to earn it. But oh, Jesus comes along and he brings the grace of God. Think of Jesus turning the water into wine. They didn't earn it. They didn't work for it. They didn't deserve it. It was the unmerited favor of God to give them this abundance of wine, this wine representing the fullness of the grace of God, of the mercy of God. And that's why I emphasize to you, these were huge water pots, 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Now, evidently, this was probably a huge wedding feast, but what Jesus did filled, in a sense, to overflowing. And that's why I started with the two verses that I did. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, full of grace and full of truth. John 1.16, for from his fullness, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So the water turned to wine represents the overflowing grace of God. I like to say to people, that the grace of God is like an ocean. And aren't you glad this morning it is? It's why we're able to go on every single day because his grace is so full and so free. No matter how many times I sin, no matter how many times I disappoint him, no matter how many times I fall short, his grace is always there for me. Always. It is new every day. Well, the third biblical implication and theological implication of this miracle, and this one may be the most important of all, in the New Testament, wine represents the blood of Christ and the complete cleansing of his sacrificial death and resurrection. And that's why I wanted you to pay close attention to verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there why were they there for the Jewish rites of purification? So Jesus takes 
not just any jars, but these jars used for the Jewish rites of purification. Those jars that were used to cleanse them only on the outside, to cleanse them only temporarily, that could do nothing to truly change their heart and their soul. And he fills those jars with wine. And we know, don't we, when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, celebrating the Passover, the Passover that he would turn into the Lord's Supper. He has bread and he has wine. Wine. And he says to them, this cup is the blood of my covenant. Drink this in remembrance of me. This cup is the blood of my covenant with you. It is the blood that represents the death and resurrection of Christ that doesn't just cleanse us on the outside. It cleanses us on the inside. It's the very thing I shared with you last Sunday morning on Resurrection Sunday. All of our sins, every single one of them, have been forgiven in Christ and these water jars filled with wine represent the blood of Christ that totally cleanses us of our sins. In Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14, it says this of the saints. They, excuse me, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What a great miracle. What a great miracle. So, and again, as I mentioned, those are just three of the biblical and theological implications of Jesus turning water into wine. I'm sure there are more that we could possibly study and conclusions we could come to. Well, that brings us to our last point this morning, our third point, and that is the glory of Christ. Most importantly, in this miracle... Jesus manifests his glory as the Son of God, the Lamb of God, and the prophesied Messiah. Jesus glorifies himself. He brings glory, glory to himself as he turns this water into wine and demonstrates through this miracle and the subsequent miracles we will see throughout the Gospel of John. He manifests his glory and shows us that he is the Son of God, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he is the prophesied Messiah. And oh, in verse 11, it says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. He manifested his glory through this miracle and his disciples believe in him. Think of the glory of the Lord in this one miracle. God was living among them. God was living right there. God was attending a wedding in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Think with me. The joy of the Lord has come 
And it is Jesus. It is Jesus. Think with me. The grace of God had come, and it is Jesus. Think with me. The salvation of God had come, and it is Jesus. Oh, let me say to all of us this morning, when you have a need, your Savior not only meets your need, he provides in abundance. He fills those needs of your life. He fills those water jars of your life right to the brim. And you know what he fills them with? Him. He fills them with himself. We have so many needs. Our first and greatest need is our need for salvation. And through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, and placing our trust and confidence alone in that death and resurrection for our salvation, he gives us, according to the book of Hebrews, a salvation that is to the uttermost. According to the book of Ephesians, it is a salvation in which we are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. It is a complete, thorough, glorious salvation that we have in him. Think of your need for daily power to live the Christian life, our need for the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, every need that you have every day finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Every longing of your soul, every hungering of your heart finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And again, he takes those water jars of your life and fills them to the brim and he fills them with himself because he is everything that you need. Think of your need for comfort, your need for peace, your need for strength. And as we go through this pandemic, this time that is scary, this time that is uncertain, this time that is unpredictable. Sometimes we're afraid. Sometimes we're anxious through this all. And let me tell you, Jesus is the one who fills every need, every longing that you have no matter what you go through. Let me say to you this morning, he may not give you or me great wealth. He may not always give us good health. Maybe even right now some of you are experiencing illness, suffering as I speak to you. But he gives us something more important something more important than wealth and something more important than health, he gives us himself. He promises us. He promises us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He promises us that he is an ever-present and ever-present and ever-present help in our time of need. Every empty water jar in your life he fills to the brim, and he fills it with himself. Let us praise him. Let us glorify him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. 
Thank you for this great miracle that demonstrates so many important truths to us. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the joy of the Lord that is Jesus himself. We thank you for the grace of God that is Jesus himself. We thank you for your full and free salvation, washed in the blood of the Lamb, washed in the blood of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you that you take our needs and you fill them to the brim. You fill them with yourself. And we thank you and praise you.